This is the I Went Down to the River podcast. I'm Dan Walton, and I will sit down with fellow alums and talk about what it meant to be a part of the Hawken football program and wear the wings. We share stories of friendship, memorable games, funny moments, and how football made us who we are. You don't need to be on a bus for these tangs. Now let's go down to the river. If you've been a part of the Hawken football varsity program at any point between 1986 and 2017, chances are you know today's guest. He was a linebacker on defense and played guard on offense. He spent many years coaching at the middle school and high school levels and also carried the designation of kangaroo court judge. In the program, his jersey was number 56. He was a member of the 1988 team. John Christie, thanks for joining me and taking this trip down to the river. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, I'll, um, I, I know you've got a, a great outline for us, but I'll, I'll mix, it up, mix it up and then try to wrap it right back in. Uh, my first year of coaching, there was this uh, seventh grade little scrawny kid uh, named Danny, uh, who, uh, when I, whose dad I knew very well was was one of uh my charges in my initial year and uh, <laughs> if memory serves me i was in charge of the defense and uh so i had this guy who at least knew where he was supposed to go even though what you weigh maybe 85 90 pounds at the time yeah uh with with some of the equipment on probably yeah uh the irony is is i think uh, you and uh, Mike Guttmacher were about the same size and you went on to be a quarterback and Mike was a lineman, but uh, long, <laughs> long time ago. There, there probably won't be too many uh, middle school football uh, stories shared by myself at any point during these. Uh, <laughs> so, so thanks for, uh, for letting everyone dip the toe in there. <laughs> I, 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 memory serves me. I think we had a winning record. We, we were all right. Yeah, that yeah. was uh that was back when we had basically like two defensive backs and just a nine man front because there weren't many uh, extended or spread formations. And uh, uh, also explains why I was able to be a defensive coordinator because <laughs> that whole secondary thing with only two of you guys back there, I, I could handle that. But if there were four or five, I'd have no chance. <laughs> right. And since one of them, you know, graduated from the junior high school, went on to be a, a, a pretty good soccer player, shows how how much uh, talent I had back there. Yeah, it was Greg Adler and I back on the yep. uh, the last uh, line of defense, so to speak. Yep. So, John, we are uh, we are starting a lot of these interviews off the same way, and that is with uh, you getting a chance to be able to share what your first hawk and football memory was with us. So th- that that question's got sort of three different levels for me. Uh, the, the first level, and that's why you, you being on the, the field that I think has moved since they've done more to this school, although I'm not sure. Um, you and I both started our, our talking career on that field. I was an eighth grader, um, knew I wanted to play football, had played CYO before transferring to Hawken in eighth grade. Uh, Dave Code. Uh, was my first introduction to, to Hawken and to Hawken football. Uh, just a tremendous guy. I know you've, I know there's going to be several of these and, and not all of them have that lower school flavor or experience, but uh, Dave was just, um, just a tremendous, tremendous guy. Uh, solid coach. Had, um, 
there was a unique time that I think you actually revisited it in your time at, at the school where Dave was the high school varsity track coach and um, he and your dad would trade gigs uh, between the football season and the track season, your dad teaching and coaching football at the high school during that season. And then after wrestling season would come down to Lyndhurst. So Dave, who coached basketball and football at the junior high, would come up to the high school for, for track and field. And um, we, uh, so as an eighth grader, um, several, several of my teammates made it, made it all the way through Hawking both to graduate, but also sticking with football. And, uh, you know, John Carrick, who I still see today, who lives, you know, about a mile away from me, uh, was one of the first guys there. Arvin Jawa, who he has two daughters, but uh, is, is one of those guys who claims multi-generational uh, Hawking graduates in his household. I think his, his oldest has graduated or will shortly. She's um, close. Yeah. Um, so the, the two of them, um, ironically, uh, Scott Thomas was was one of our star running backs and Scott moved on to Chagrin Falls to graduate. We ended up uh, besting him a couple of times when he put on the orange and black. Uh, but that's where my children graduated. Uh, ben, ben Curtis was on that team with me. Ben graduated from from West G. Uh, also sort of along that new CBC crew with us. Uh, ben and I were the guards on that team. Um, and uh, Ari Epstein, another guy who played, who I played with all five years, eighth grade through high school. Um, I think that would be Ari, John, and myself, and Arvin would be the four guys who, who made it all the way through at Hawk and on that. And I, I, you know, I don't remember uh, Dave Code's opening speech, uh, but I do remember his presence. And I do remember that, that group of guys, there were a couple others uh, that I remember from that time, which would be my first memory. Uh, then white helmets with, uh, with gray face masks. Um, then, you know, fast forward a year, freshman year, uh, when freshmen used to um, practice separately and, and have our own ninth grade team and introduced a, a handful of new guys, including Greg Kickle, who was the uh, quarterback for the team that was the state runner up um, and, and a couple other guys who I obviously played with for four years. So for freshmen back then, we started later than the varsity. Um, we got these, um, you know, things were a little more old school back then. In addition to having a freshman team, we also got these lovely bright yellow uh, practice jerseys <laughs> with no numbers, which was probably important because we only had about 15 kids. So uh, you didn't need to distinguish between the linemen and the, and the skill guys. Um, and there was the, always the fight of racing to get the helmet that somebody from last year's team had not peeled his wings off of because we knew the varsity guys had the wings on their helmet. Uh, but at least we graduated from the plain white helmets to a gray. And as an Ohio guy and an Ohio State guy, John Kerr, huge Ohio State guy, wore 36 because of Chris Spielman. 
Um, and our, our freshman jerseys and uniforms were classic Ohio State look. Uh, we did not get Buckeyes. We, did, we didn't even get Zonks, but uh, we thought it was a good look. And then going out on the freshman field with, you know, two, two very legendary guys, depending on generational how you think of them as legends. But Frank Brandt, who had been the head coach, uh, who, who coached both Peter and, and Aaron Brandt, who were both great players. Aaron was the varsity quarterback when I was a freshman and was that guy who his younger brother didn't play football, was in my class. But Aaron was that guy who, when you walked by him in the hallway, you knew he was he was the varsity guy, and uh, you know was just um, that that gutty gambler, little bit of dirt on his jersey, and you know if you needed to stick his head into something to get it done, it'd get it done. But if you needed to make the right read, he was going to make the right read. Um, I remember as a freshman, not dressed at the Hawk in the U.S. game. And uh, the varsity was undefeated. And, you know, U.S. has always been a bigger school because they had all boys and we had we had young ladies with us. Uh, and maybe the first play, but one, no, it wasn't the first play because I know the first play was, sprint, was a sprint pass because it always was back then. Always. Uh, but the second play, maybe, or it, certainly in the first series, uh, called a sprint run. And we had a pared down playbook of the varsity playbook, but we had that one in our playbook. So, you know, me and my buddies were all standing there and we're watching and we know the play and Artie Haynes was the, was the back Artie uh, got recruited to go play at Purdue was also, I think he was a state champ. I know he held the school record for a while in the hundred and Artie was a big dude. And to run that fast, that size still impresses me. Um, but, uh, you know, running down, here's Aaron, who's, I, I think I'd say it even if he was on with us, a little bit of a runt, kind of my size, my build. <laughs> and here's Artie, who was this big, strong, you know, guy who, if you stood them next to each other, you'd say, there's the football player and there's Aaron. Um, and came down, sprint run left toward our bench, and Aaron pitched the ball, and the defensive back from U.S. caught it in stride and took it to the house and we were losing. And I don't know if that was the first time the varsity was behind, but it was us. We were losing and came back and Aaron didn't miss a beat and had a great game. Uh, and you know, it, it, it showed you every reason why when you saw him in the hallway and said, that's the guy, the way he carried himself after what could have should have been a devastating thing. It was like, okay, that one's over. Now let's go get all the rest of them. And they did. And I want to say us maybe didn't even score again. I think we might've blanked them after that, but uh, that was my first memory of a varsity game show up the following fall. All the jerseys were laid out on the restroom room floor you had to wait till the seniors went. You had to wait till the juniors went. And then, you know, us lowly sophomores could go and pick out the remaining numbers. Uh, I, I started out as number 66. Uh, Dave Evans had my coveted 56. Um, and, uh, you know, you started out, as you know, going out to two-a-days, doing some conditioning to start things. And so some of my first memories 
sort of resetting a little bit. I had wrestled as a freshman. So I had had Coach Walton as my wrestling coach. And I'd been exposed to him for, with that and uh, you know, knew I definitely wanted to keep playing football. But I didn't know uh, Gary Moses was on the staff at all. And I didn't know uh, Harry Waller because he wasn't Harry uh, Waller and, and Gary Moses. Neither of them were, were teachers. And then there was Merle Davis, who was a math teacher. But math's not my strong suit. And Merle's way smarter than it. So I didn't have him certainly as a freshman or sophomore in math. Uh, <laughs> but he was a little bit scary to us. And uh, everybody referred to him as Mad Dog behind his back, never to his face. Um, and I was slow and um, had heard Mr. Davis, Coach Davis, yell at uh, linemen in practices when I was over with the freshman the year prior. And all you wanted to do was not have him scream and yell at you. And uh, so you try to learn your plays, have everything perfect. He'd test you during the, the break between stuff. And then you had uh, Harry Waller, who had a little bit of a draw, old school football guy. I, I still don't even know that I know his background, but he was that guy. He and Merle coached the line. And Harry would had this great sense when he knew, let me pull this kid aside and we're going to talk about a couple of things and I'll walk you through. And you had, you know, Davis, who you were afraid of and who was definitely a hollerer. And you had Coach Waller who would teach you technique and he'd teach you little tricks. And he would say, hey, look, if you're going to get a handful of jersey, make sure it's, you know, tight in here like this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, don't worry about Coach Davis. Let's work on your footwork over here. And, you know, as much as um, there's still moments that I'm intimidated by, uh, by Merle Davis today, uh, Harry uh, was that great counterpart who would calm you down and you knew somehow it was going to be okay with that stuff. And it was a, a great marriage between those two guys. A little uh, good cop, bad cop. Yeah. And, and I, and I think it just very naturally between them. Uh, but I do remember, you know, hearing coach Waller, get them up, get them up, get them up. You know, when we were doing our raw drills to get ready. Getting through and the then, stepper too. Yep. And then um, perhaps my favorite uh, coach Waller, memory is we went uh and i think you know the story where i'm going so we we were we were we were good um i mean hawkins never really not been good for any super long stretches but my sophomore year uh the varsity had gone 10 and 0 the year before we had upgraded the schedule a little bit uh and dropped some of the not as good games and we because we played an independent schedule back then we would literally play anybody anywhere just about. And we went to Buckeye and we had uh, dominated everybody we played. As a sophomore who barely belonged on a football field at any level, uh, I was getting a lot of playing time. That's how much we were beating teams by. And we show up at Buckeye and we get off the bus and there's kids there saying that trying to get OJ McDuffie's autograph, which was like, <laughs> Oh, wow, that's weird. This is just a guy who I drive back and forth to practice because, again, when I got up to the varsity, uh, my my carpool to and from practices bef before school started for two a days, it was um, Mel Jones, Will Applin, 
Mark, uh, Marcus Teague sometimes, OJ, and a guy named Steve Brill and myself. So that's five or six of us. And we would pile into this Dodge Omni that Brill drove. And so like, you kind of hope that somebody slept over somebody's house or something else happened because I was the, the scrawny little sophomore. And I was like, you know, my nose against the hatchback of that car in August with no air conditioning. I, I mean, I probably lost five pounds going to practice, my, whatever <laughs> happened there. But, you know, so I, OJ is silly as this sounds because he obviously was and is uh, just a tremendous athlete and, and a, just a great guy too. It was just, he was one of the guys on the team. And now there's like little kids asking for his autograph. So we go in, we go through our pregame and it was middle of the season. And the other team, uh, we were playing uh, Medina Buckeye. I believe they were the Bucks, uh, not the most creative name, but they weren't warming up on the field. And, you know, we, uh, you know, you always warm up before the field. They didn't stretch. They're not running plays. We don't see them. Clock winds down. We go in the locker room, come out to start the game. They are there. It's, you know, we didn't intimidate them off the field. They did show up at their own place for it. And the game starts, and we're on defense. And uh, David Henkel, who was a year ahead of me, went on to play at Michigan. Um, an, another tremendous athlete from that class. Um, Dave was, uh, was one of our inside linebackers and, um, he didn't play offense as a junior. So when we came off the field on defense, um, he's got, he goes over to coach Moses, who was the defensive coordinator and they're trying to figure out what they're running. And Henkel starts describing, he goes, well, there's a guy calling a snap count, but he's not behind the center. And they're snapping it to this guy. He's lined up like the fullback, but I don't know. And Coach Waller goes, oh, here's what they're doing. They're running a single wing. And <laughs> Coach Waller was in his moment because within two minutes, he had diagrammed the entire single wing offense for our defense <laughs> because they had totally scrapped their offense, figuring their best way to do anything against us. And our defense was was good that year, was, was dominant that year. The best way to do something against our defense was to to play a gimmick offense the whole game. And uh, Waller knew exactly what they were doing. And, and again, it showed what a tremendous coaching staff was there that you had, you know, a player coming off the field, talking to the defensive coordinator and properly identifying, even though he had never seen it before, even though we'd obviously not worked on it during the week, properly identifying what was happening in front of him and the experience and the intellect of the coaching staff to be able to to dissect that and put us in a position to be successful meanwhile the other half of the coaching staff um you know your dad calling the offense and, and coach davis and the and the line didn't need to be involved because you had quality people on the other side taking care of stuff so, you know, that sort of that, that whole first season, uh, getting to watch, getting to see how things worked at the varsity level and just, you know, tremendous coaches, tremendous players. Uh, I mean, that I know the next year we went one game further in the postseason, um, but in terms of teams that I saw coached, 
or played on, I think that 86 team may may be the best one. I don't I, I'd be I'd be curious to hear some of the other podcasts and some of the other guests in, in terms of how they uh, how they look at that. But I mean, that that senior class was loaded in my mind. Um, the junior class was an embarrassment of riches. Um, and my class, we had some guys who were very good football players who all they had to be is role players uh, because there was just so much depth and talent in front of us. You know, your first year on the varsity to have, um, you know, Mike Noonan was the, the strong side linebacker and the starting fullback. And Mike understood what we were trying to do on defense, you know, cause I, I, I practiced with the linebackers obviously every day and I was with Mike every day and being able to watch him and watch how he played he called the defenses and had us doing what we were supposed to do. And I'd see him interacting with Coach Moses uh, because he played half the time on offense, so he spent time there. And then Eddie Yoon was the, the, the hawk back at the time, and Ed was uh, you know, basically strong safety, who was this small guy who was about as wide as he was tall uh, with no fat on him who could run like the wind and had no – um, no fear in him. Uh, I think the game was uh, Jeromesville Hillsdale, where and again memories fade and some urban legend takes hold. But they ran a sweep and re- Eddie came flying up and just lit their tail back up, and they had to carry the kid off the field. And then they tried to run a sweep the other way, but Moses had changed up the defense and Eddie was there and he did the same thing to the backup guy. And it was you know. You were not gonna. You were not gonna run on the edges on an edge unit. Yeah, uh, I believe Hillsdale was on running back three on play four for the rest of the yeah. night, and that game, as you can imagine, got out of hand real quick. I I uh, I believe I got some of my first non-win zonks. I had a key block on a touchdown uh, on a counter play to a guy who started as a guard the next year. Uh, <laughs> now, Dr. Rod Rezai. Rod Rezai, sure. Uh, Rod and I actually met and went to nursery school together and then were reunited at Hawking years later. And Rod was a slot as a uh, junior and made the logical progression to line because, you know, why else? Um, and scored on a uh, on a counterplay that I was the pulling guard for at, at Hillsdale. Um the, the third captain on that team was Jim Liss, who I want to say he was all state a couple times as a, uh, as a middle guard, as a nose tackle. Um, I'll, I'll merge my fear of coach Davis and my admiration of Jim. Uh, Jim is one of my favorite teammates. He was older than me. Uh, he was also captain of the wrestling team for, for two of the years that I wrestled until he graduated uh, hard worker, didn't say much, um, found out years later was one of the most intelligent people I went to school with, but didn't say much and didn't play up that stuff. Uh, just did what he was supposed to do and was what he was supposed to be doing. And was one of those rare defensive linemen that teams in interior defensive linemen that teams had to game plan for, cause he could, he could wreck everything you were trying to do. 
And you can imagine as a sophomore lining up on the scout team uh, and you've got this guy who's coming off his All-State junior year who, you know, you've watched him dominate varsity guys and now you're trying to block him. And of course, I've got no chance to block him. But as soon as he's in the backfield, he's messing up the plays. And so the varsity team is not getting a good look. And um, Coach Davis comes into the scout huddle. And he, by the way, he coached the defensive line and the offense line. So he had Jim all practice long and had had him for three years and knew all this. Comes in and starts raining. Doggone it. You know, he's messing up everything we're doing. You know where he's going because you know what defense we're running. You know where you're going because you know what play we're running. You know the snap count. If he gets in the backfield this play, you're going to the hawk, which meant, what, about a 300-yard round, four or 500-round trip at least. Yeah, it was closer to Sherman Road than it was to our practice football field. Yeah. And, and you, did, uh, you did not want to have to run to the hawk. W- yeah, with or without your helmets and your shoulder pad and everything else on. And if you were a sophomore, you didn't always exactly have the best fit in practice pants either. Um, <laughs> at least we got red jerseys instead of the yellows. But um, so Davis tells us if he's in the backfield, we're going to the Hawk. He goes, I don't care if you have to hold. Him. So Davis scared me more than Jim by a little bit. And uh, balls snapped and Jim is breaking through my left side between me and the center. And I two hands up grabbed two hands full of Jersey. And I pulled this guy down on top of me who probably outweighed me by 40 or 50 pounds, but was much stronger than me and much faster than me to boot. And he shot me this look and I could think of no good defenses, except coach Davis told me to do it. And uh, that actually was okay with Jim who sort of snarled at me and went back to the huddle. And then um, I don't think I blocked him again the rest of the day because I was still a little bit scared of Davis, but that snarl maybe pulled Jimmy ahead for a minute. Um, But, you know, just those are the three captains on that team. Um, You had uh, other guys um, on that team who were, you know, you had Joe Nara who, again, was just one of those smart guys where he was supposed to be not a bad athlete, but not a superstar athlete, but he was, he was the primary safety uh, for that defense, uh, you know, playing center field back there. You had, and, and Joe went on, not necessarily due to his uh, football skills, but perhaps his football acumen worked for the NFLPA. Um, you had, uh, you know, uh, Chaz Grossman, uh, played the end and was a, was a lineman in front of him was one of the guards in front of me that I got to watch. Uh, John Fanroff, a, a big offensive tackle. Again, these are guys who you're not necessarily going to pick first for the, uh, for the pickup game, but were where they were supposed to be and knew the, the schemes. And then you had, you know, I talked about Steve Brill who drove me back and forth to practice. Steve was this big skinny kid, real tall. I, I don't know that he weighed a whole lot, but he was always where he was supposed to be. Uh, Terrell Menifee, one of the funniest guys you're ever going to meet, always clowning around except when the game started. And then he was where he was supposed to be doing what he was supposed to be doing. Um, You know, I'm trying to think of any other seniors that I'm sort of leaving off, but I mean, it was just, it was this great group of guys who 
all of them contribute. I know who I'm forgetting, all of whom contributed some way, somehow. And the, the guy who I'm forgetting, it's really, it's, it's classic. Uh, Brent Grundon, who uh, got the nickname of the mole, Brent was that guy who was never going to necessarily be the best guy at any spot, but could probably play all 11 spots on both sides of the ball and would not complain about it at all. If somebody needed to dive in the mud and get a fumble, the bottom of that pile would be Brent Grundon. If somebody needed to get a half a yard for a first down, Brent would get it for you. He might not be the best choice, but he'd get it for you. If somebody else had progressed and gotten better during the season and took reps from Brent, he'd be the first guy whispering in that guy's ear, telling him how good a job he was doing or what he could do differently. And just was that be everywhere guy, always upbeat, like to this day when I see him, he lives, he lives a mile down the road this way. To this day when I see him, always upbeat, always in a good mood. The, always the, has that the, smile on his face. Yeah, the, 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 the next time I see him in a bad mood will be the first time I see him in a bad mood. Just tremendous guy in that whole class that was like that. You know, the, the title of the podcast, Going Down to the River, you know, obviously we had some, some long road trips because we literally did go down to the river a couple of times. Um, and uh, when you've got an hour or two worth of orangutans, even when you hang 40 or 50 points on a team, eventually you get away from uh, how good a run or a block somebody had. <laughs> and it just, the, the banter between these guys was fun and was added to the experience. And I think that that junior class behind them, it really, it, it set the stage so nicely for that run to the state championship game because you had that selfless group in front. You know, there's, it's obviously OJ was the best player on that team and you had those guys, but you had the selflessness. And I got one more guy who I also forgot on that team where you had a Brent Grundin who was wise enough to say, Ed Hume's a better hawk than me. So that's why Ed gets more playing time than me. And by the end of the season, hey, Marcus Teague's a better slot than me. So he's going to get more reps than me, but I'm not going to sit there and suck my thumb and pout about it. I'm going to say, where else can I help? And, you know, maybe one more guy, who's sort of his case in point on that is, is Danny Gresham. Uh, Dan was, as a junior, uh, an, an outstanding defensive end, didn't really want to be the quarterback. Um, you know, you had Aaron Brandt, awful big shoes to fill, and you had this guy McDuffie who had demonstrated that he was a special athlete, and that's a lot of pressure, and it's a lot of pressure for a guy who doesn't want it. And Danny was, Danny was hesitant to do it, and did it, and did just did a nice job, and and worked hard at it. And it was not about you know uh, your stereotypical quarterback beating his chest and whatever. It was a we got a job to do here, guys, and you know we would, you know, from the football breakfast on our Saturday game days to when we were doing stuff, it was a group where all of those guys really embraced all of us from, it's easy to embrace the superstars, but down to the guys like me who were just, you know, happy to be there and learning what needed to be done to be successful. 
And, you know, you go from those three great captains and that tremendous senior class down to that junior class in the next year. You know, I remember, um, you know, the, the first ever playoff game it was at Solon High School. Uh, we actually had a spaghetti dinner at Solon uh, before the game. We played Grand Valley. Um, Mike Schof, who is the, let's say he's the superintendent of the Rocky River Schools uh, today. Really? He's superintendent somewhere on the west side of Cleveland. But Mike was uh, recruited to play at Ohio State. Large and, man. Uh, he was a real big man. And uh, so if you if you get Chaz Grossman on here, Chaz tells stories better than I do about Shof because he got to block him for the better part of four quarters, or at least, as he put it, try to, or at least get in his way while O.J. ran past both of them. <laughs> um, and then the last series, we were up, I think it was 28 to 6, uh, and um, the coaching staff, made sure that all of us, because if I was on the field, it was all of us, uh, got into the game. And so I go trotting out there and here's this mountain of a man, Mike Schoff, lining up in front of me as I take Chaz Grossman off the field. And we ran a sweep away and I'm just looking at this guy and I, I, I just tried to take his legs out because I knew I had no chance of doing anything else. And I, don't know this to be true, but I'm pretty sure one of the coaches up in the booth for Grand Valley said that tiny little 66 kid's going to hurt Shof. Get him off the field before he wrecks his whole life. <laughs> uh, and then the next play, some other dude came in who I had a much better chance at than uh, than Mike. But you know, we we lost at uh, Baldwin Wallace um, in a in a game that I don't know. I, like I said, I think that team was the best team I've seen or played on or coached. But um, the next year we came back and we came back ready. I think that those seniors really did a nice job of setting the table and setting it for the next year where, you know, you had an OJ, obviously a natural captain, a natural leader in there. But you also had, you know, and you had David, David Henkel, who, if memory serves me, had already won a state championship in swimming. Swimming uh, was a guy who both of his older brothers had been quarterbacks, but um, again, no ego, linebacker, fullback. Why? Because we needed a fullback and we needed a linebacker. And Dave was just tough as nails. And he, you know, he had a little bit of a concussion problem before anybody knew about that, and it didn't matter. Dave just wanted to be out there playing. And uh, then you had Terry Brennan was one of the captains on that team. Another guy who's still in town. Um, Terry was that quiet. He's going to outwork you. Uh, played uh, defensive end and played tight end. And uh, we modified the offense a little bit to take advantage of Terry's ability uh, to set an edge for you. His nickname was Ox. And it, it was apropos. He was just a big, tough kid. And then uh, Andy Pay was the fourth captain. And Andy was a naturally big guy. Uh, to give you an idea of the diversity of character that we had, 
Andy is a semi-famous winemaker out in uh, Northern California now, having been an offensive lineman and a punch-in-the-face guy. Uh, you know, those were the four captains who I think learned a lot, you know, with OJ, who learned a lot from the year uh, the year uh, prior. And you had, you know, other guys on that team again. Some were some you would call quote unquote role players who in any other year would have been the best players on the team. Will Applin was a heck of a defensive player. Um, Will could not catch a cold. He had worse hands than me. Uh, and for a defensive back, that was not uh, the best trait for him. But boy, he didn't care about catching the ball. He was going to punish you. And he did. And, you know, Owen Benjamin, a super gifted guy, excellent cornerback, uh, solid receiver, you know, um, there. Um, Mel Jones was, um, I, as a freshman, I show up at school, I show up in French class, and uh, the academic wing that's no longer there, we were in upstairs. I don't know why we had a French class in what I believe was the math department, but um, Mel, uh, so Mel's sitting in front of me and dozed off a little bit in class. And Mel is about 6'3", 6'4", and I'll generously say 275 because I'm making fun of him for falling asleep in class. And uh, the, the teacher goes, uh, I was sitting directly behind him. He goes, John, uh, he goes, would you give Mel a, a nudge? And I leaned out from behind this massive human being in front of me, and I went, nope. Uh, but found out years later that Mel was that gentle giant guy who, again, would do anything for you and just a good guy. Uh, and fortunately for him, I didn't know it that day because today I would have just, you know, swatted him in the back of the head. Um, you know, I talked about Rod was I, Rod and I, similar sized guys, um, I'm going to generously say we were both about five, eight and uh, both of us wrestled within one weight class of each other. So we probably both played football in the 160 to 170 range. And, um, you know, there's a guy who started at guard for a state runner up team. Um, you know, Todd Heyman started at guard on that team with Rod and, and Todd was a little bit bigger than, than Roddy and I, uh, but just worked hard and did, did what he was supposed to. The, the they were the they ran the plays back and forth, a la um, you know uh, Paul Brown stuff. And the other guard was a, a kid named Steve Arnold. And Steve had been a quarterback, uh, and there was not a quarterback in that class other than Steve. And he moved to offensive line because that's where he could help us, and that's where we needed him. And Checked his ego at the door and was an excellent lineman and an even better comedian. Uh, Handy and Terrell Manaphy the year before would keep us entertained on our Monday lifting and running days after games. Uh, but, you know, again, no ego. Steve just in there lifting weights, doing what he needed to do to get better. And I, I think I've had just about everybody except one that I'm purposely saving for, for last is, uh, is Marcus T. And Marcus is, uh, you know, we chatted a little bit before we started. Marcus is, in my mind, the best player that, that to come through that school that nobody's heard of. Um, 
you know, he had this guy named McDuffie in front of him who played in the NFL. Uh, but for that guy, Marcus would have probably most, if not all, the, the records that OJ has at Hawkins football. And uh, I recall in college that uh, Marcus was in the top 10 in all-purpose yards at, uh, at Denison. And not a surprise, just uh, all-around good guy, good ball player. Not a whole lot he couldn't do and he couldn't do well. And, um, you know, he and OJ to this day are great friends. Very easily could have, I don't know, uh, been envious or been a distraction because OJ was getting the attention and getting the touches and getting the notoriety. And, and Marcus, in his own right, was a, was a tremendous guy, ball player. Um, you know, the... Uh, if Marcus watches this, I'll tell this story to, to jab him a little bit. The only thing that I can say about Marcus is if there was mud on the field, he did not want to go down, which was great uh, when he was running the ball because he would do his best to keep clean. Uh, but uh, when we practiced our uh, kneel down uh, play at the end of practice on the muddy weeks, the goal was to get Marcus dirty. He's the only guy uh, that I can think of that would play an entire game on a muddy field and look like the sophomore who didn't get on the field in terms of how clean his jersey was. You'd stand him next to OJ. OJ's covered in mud. Everybody else is covered in mud. Marcus, who played as many snaps as everybody else, would have like two little you know spots where he wiped his hand off. Uh, but just such a talented, talented guy. Um, you know, and, and that season, obviously, we uh, I, I've told people many times we, we went down. And if I'm getting ahead of myself, just reel me back in whenever you need to. Oh, you're good. Um, we uh, we started that year uh, by playing two. Um, but, but we had upgraded the beginning of our schedule the, the previous year when I was a sophomore. Uh, our first two games were against lesser opponents. Uh, I joked with people that um, I thought I had this varsity football thing licked as a sophomore because going into week three, I, I'd already played nearly three full quarters as the third string linebacker. Um, the, the teams were not very good and, and we were, we were excellent. Um, so the following year, we added um, Chagrin Falls and Perry, who were both a little bit bigger than we were, uh, but both schools with ex excellent reputations, excellent programs. And, you know, the, the talk was, and, and the coaching staff let us know this, why'd you guys schedule them? You guys are playing Chagrin. You've got no business playing Chagrin. You guys are going to get whooped. And in fact, Chagrin that year beat Kenston, who was even bigger than than chagrin and it was a huge upset upset when chagrin did that uh unfortunately for chagrin we had already beat them in the opener uh only to draw them in the first round of the playoffs too but we we beat chagrin we beat perry uh we rolled through most of the season like that we um we i don't know what the what the proper and or politically correct way to describe it. The only regular season loss we had, uh, we traveled to a 
to an independent school that did not operate under Ohio high school rules. They had a couple of kids on their team who had been senior captains for two or three different years. Um, again, I'm not sure how much is pure urban legend, but I know that they had guys who, no, there were, more there were plenty of PGs that uh, came yeah. in and out of that program over the years, which was part of the reason why um, the 94 season, we had finally had enough and we got them off the schedule because yeah. you didn't know who you were planning for, but also you had these kids that were coming in for just, just essentially that fall football season so that they can get a couple more credits or get the grades up a little bit. And then they wouldn't even be there in the winter because they're off to whatever college. Yeah. And, um, and, and they had a very good team uh, and they had some, they had some very good ball players on that team. Uh, one kid who actually was, was my year. So he was a junior. I remember as a freshman in college, um, watching him and hearing him get announced as a, as a starter at Syracuse, uh, and I was like, well, I feel better about him throwing me around the field for four quarters as a senior, but Chip Todd. Uh, they, yeah, Chip Todd. Let's, let's save the Chip Todd story against WRA for your senior year a little later. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but as a junior, we went over to their place and, um, we, uh, we scored a touchdown and shortly after we got in the end zone flag came out. And like, I don't even like saying it because you can't control the officials. You can control your stuff and you just take care of business. But it seemed like we couldn't. And I don't know what the what the stat line shows in terms of flags and yardage against both teams. I do know that three different times we were in the end zone and three different times flags came out and they didn't come out when and where you would expect. There was one long touchdown run where some 30 yards behind the play, a flag came out. And, and you still can hold and clip and whatever behind the play. It does happen. Um, on our extra point, um, we, uh, we threw a jump pass to Terry Brennan, and um, Terry got tackled before the ball got to him. Uh, I, it, you know, I don't, he may have dropped it if he had had the opportunity or not, but he didn't even have the opportunity. No flag. Uh, our last um, our last offensive snap against that uh, that year in that game was a uh, a deep ball. Greg Kickle was the junior quarterback. Greg was my year uh, through the ball. I'm not a hundred percent sure it, it, if it wasn't to OJ, then shame on Greg. I'm assuming it was. <laughs> uh, and the, the guy from uh, from the the team we were playing intercepted it. And um, ended up in the end zone after he caught it and was tackled. And the one guy back there sing, signaled safety, which candidly I think was the wrong call. Um, but the head guy goes running down, overrules him, and not only overrules him, but then spots the ball in the 20-yard line. Well, you know. Can't be one well, without, yeah. Right. It, it might not have been a safety. That was maybe not the right call. but. If it wasn't a safety, then the ball's on the three yard. It, you, you know, you can't, it, it was definitely the wrong call. And that to me sort of summed up. And uh, they scored a touchdown in a two point conversion. Uh, there's a ball in their trophy case that shows eight six us losing. 
And every time I've been back to that institution, when I see it, I want to smash that glass and take that ball and do away with it. Um, to the credit of the seniors and the coaching staff, we put that away, uh, went on a nice little run. Um, again, all the way through the playoffs, we go down to, we go down to Columbus. So the fo- ahead, go ahead. yeah, the following week after that WRA setback was who on the schedule? It was either Gilmore or U.S. That's I what I was wondering. Was Do you by any chance have any recollection about what the mindset of the staff and the team was coming off of that, that bump, that hiccup? I will say, and, and the internet allows us to do all sorts of digging. And if somebody can prove me wrong, I will, I will do a retraction. I remember reading the paper Sunday and uh, your dad was quoted and it's the closest I've ever seen or heard him publicly criticizing the officials. He didn't say they cost us the game. He didn't say any of that stuff. Um, but anybody who knew him knew exactly what he was saying. And, and it sort of struck me. And he had said something to us in the locker room afterwards as well. And, you know, it was one of those things where you're like, boy, I thought we were getting Homer, but like this guy who wouldn't, ever let us even think of that as saying it we might might have and i don't know if he caught himself or or whatever but we came in monday we did not watch film of that game and we just started prepping for the next game and it was you know look it was what it was uh it's canceled check we can't go back we can't do anything about it um and uh we got back to work and then ran off another run and and you know, in, in thinking about this little session here, because I just I just used one of them. Um, there's a lot of little things and sayings and attitudes that, you know, I picked up from Hawking football that uh, that carry over. Uh, you know, obviously, I do not play in the NFL, nor do I coach in the NFL. Uh, and despite my what my eight year old self thought was possible, I don't think that uh the physicality was ever going to be there for that. But in my day-to-day life, the number of things and expressions and knowing what those expressions mean uh, carries over, you know, canceled check was, was one of coach Walton's favorites. It's um, and I, I explained it to a team I coached in the last couple of years because checks don't really mean anything the same way either. Uh, but you know, it basically was his way of telling us once something happens, it happens and you can't go back and do it. That canceled check means that money's gone. Whatever happened, happened and you're, and you got to move on from it. And, you know, I have used that expression with stuff, uh, you know, get better, get worse. I don't know if it, and the can- the canceled check line also plays into why on that Monday, that was probably the only time in your varsity career that you guys did not watch film during the season because it it wasn't a matter of this team needs to fix something or this team needs to really kind of watch this film to get better at it was it was a canceled check let's not dwell on it and let's focus on the team that's up next yeah so if i can if i can write questions for when you get your dad on here uh one of the ones would be is how many times can he think of 
or does he really think that he didn't watch that the team didn't watch the game film? Because I got to tell you in between playing and coaching, I don't think I can think of five. I, I believe there's one, maybe two other times that when I was coaching that we didn't pop the game tape in. Um, but it, it, because there's always, even in that game, there was probably something to learn from that footage. Uh, but, they identified that there wasn't enough to gain and it was going to have us looking back at that 30 yard touchdown run that got called back. Like I will, a a lighter moment from that game that became less of a light moment. uh, They had a running back named Orlando Hatchet, who just was one of these super quick guys who was also very fast. And my assignment on the punt return team was to block Hatchet. And, you know, so back behind me, I got O.J. McDuffie, who's going to go to Penn State and return punts at Division One, and then in the NFL. And standing next to him, uh, a, a kid who is new as a sophomore named Len Spasic, who also another great captain, great kid, great football player, went down to Dayton to play, uh, you know, two studs behind me. And all I got to do – I knew this. I mean, I'd seen O.J. for three seasons now. All I got to do is get this guy's way for 30 seconds and give O.J. a little bit of green, and I, I look smart. And uh, the very first punt, uh, Hatchet, Hatchet deeks me at the line. And, I mean, it, it's it's like that scene in Top Gun, you know, where'd who go? I mean, he's <laughs> he's gone. I, I don't even think I saw the back of his jersey by the time I turned around, and he and – he, he hit OJ like ball contact and I did a crap job. And, uh, you know, Moses pulls me on the sideline, you know, look, you got to get in way, work your technique, blah, 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 blah. Cut down the angle if you need to. So next time they punt, I'm like right up on the line of scrimmage, not sitting back in my linebacker thing. And I'm going to, I'm going to not give this guy room to deke me because clearly I couldn't do a good job with that. And I stood him up at the line and I got my hands on him and I blocked him because I was bigger than him. He was way faster than me, but I was bigger than him. And I froze him at the line and he's nowhere to be seen. We should get that film because he's nowhere to be seen on the, <laughs> on the second punt return. I get to the sideline and Moses pulls me aside again. And I'm like, yeah, I did what I supposed to. Right. And he goes, you know, if you hold before they punt, they can get a first down. <laughs> I'll make no comment as to whether or not I was holding him, but he's not in the screen. So I don't think anybody will ever know. Um, But yeah. And again, that was a little thing. And that demonstrates the the, the great coaches, the little thing of a guy pulling you off and doing it. Um, You know, later in the season, game 10 was uh, against Brooklyn and we knew we were making the playoffs and um, we knew we were a better team. We stopped them on third down deep. They were backed up toward our end zone. And again, we had OJ. So we called a timeout to make them punt one more time before the half. And, um, you know, you would always hustle because you could always, there were always opportunities to block for OJ because he was going to make guys miss. And if you could pick off a couple other guys, you'd have a big play. Well, uh, see him developing. I lost my guy kind of near the line of scrimmage. Uh, he wasn't as fast as Hatchet, so I was able to sort of keep up with him, and I'm running down the field with him. And OJ catches the ball and starts taking it toward the end zone. 
and um, the kid stopped, planted, and turned around. And because I was hustling, I was there. And I got, you know, it's one of those blocks that looks pretty good because of the balance and the speed. I'm running and he's off balance. And I hit him pretty good. And they called me for a clip. I don't think I clipped the kid. Uh, and, and again, I'm happy to look at the, the film footage, but um, Waller grabs me as I'm going to the locker room at halftime because, of course, OJ scored. And of course, it got called back because of my block. Um, maybe the most mad I've ever seen OJ at me. Um, but, uh, you know, Waller pulls me aside and, and I tell him exactly what I, what I just said here. And he goes, if you can't see the numbers, don't touch him. It's not worth it. Don't touch him. Just a little coaching thing that I know I probably repeated to a hundred kids in the time that I was coaching. If you don't see the numbers, don't, don't touch him. I said, coach, I did see the numbers. He goes, well, he goes, maybe we'll see it on the film. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then we started the second half with, uh, <laughs> we started the second half kicking off and I've got all of halftime to stew about this call that I think is a bad call. And I go sprinting down the field on the kickoff and I get a good clean hit on the ball carrier inside the 20 yard line, good coverage. I think we've done everything right, but I'm still salty from the other thing. And I am trying to rip the ball away from the ball carrier as I go down. Cause just good coverage isn't good enough for me. Uh, and we get kind of caught up and I'm a little too fired up. And um, the official I think misinterprets my aggressiveness um, and I get flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct. So I got back to back 15 years. Yeah, what a great finish to the first half and a, and a strong yeah. start to the second half. Uh, there's a doghouse somewhere for you. Oh, it's well, so I, yeah, I'm well aware. I, you know, at this point I've got two full wrestling seasons with your dad uh, and now a, a full football season and nine and a half games uh, uh plus you know the playoffs the year before and i get up and i don't even realize that it's thrown the flag because i didn't think anything of it and i get up and i'm jogging to the sideline and i hear unsportsmanlike kind of and i'm like doggone it we had him pinned deep and then you know as the coaches are do you have a number sir it was before they announced the number <laughs> 56 and i'm like wait what and i like did a double take and turned to look and then i turned back and look at the sideline and it's like it's one of those where you're hoping that coach Walton's way down on the other 30. And I swear I, I, in my head thinking, can I like turn around and run off on their sideline? Would it be inappropriate for me to run inside the numbers for about 50 yards? So I did, there was no possible way to get to the sideline without going by him. And, and again, could have chewed me out. Maybe should have chewed me out. I went by him and he goes, well, I hope we're not going to have to talk about that again. And, and like said it almost under his breath as I went by him. And it was, I knew before, but message received and he didn't embarrass me. He didn't, he didn't like, he treated me. I, I like to hope he knew me well enough to know how bad I felt about it and, and what led to it. Um, and, you know, it was an opportunity where he very easily could have chewed me out up and down and I would have been deserving, but instead didn't. And then now we're in the playoffs. As you well know, I then had to sweat until those ready sheets got popped up 
to see if I was still going to be on the field during the playoffs or if I had blown it because clearly I can't be on kick coverage or punt return coverage because I'm an idiot. Uh, I did, in fact, maintain my my status on special teams. So. Yeah, so we finished the regular season at nine and one after that Week Ten win at Brooklyn, and we start. No, it was at it was at Hawk. It was at. Oh, Hawk. sorry, Brooklyn at Hawk. Yeah, yep. and we are starting the playoff run now. Um, determined to go deeper than we did the previous year, and uh, now you are a year older, and you're a contributing member of this experience that's about to take place. Talk to us about what that playoff uh, run was for you in '87 uh, for you and your teammates. Very special again because you you nailed it. Now I'm a, now I'm part of it. You know, as a sophomore. Um, John and uh, Kickle and Ari Epstein were playing some special teams. But, I mean, you know how the locker room works. All of us sophomores were stuffed in the worst corner of every visiting locker room that we were at. And we sort of, you if know. not still, near the shower, right? <laughs> yeah. And we're all still immature and, and goofy and, and giggly about stuff. And nobody really cares as long as we don't screw up what the guys who were really important that day are doing. Now, that same group of guys who are slightly less immature and slightly less goofy, we're now we're now playing. I mean, Greg Kickle went from special teams guy who would sit and giggle with us and tell stories to he's the starting quarterback. And, you know, you, you had a, a John Carrick who now was – getting all sorts of meaningful time because you had to give some of these other guys rests and John was the starting strong safety and, and was, was playing, you know, I'm sitting next to these guys on the bus and I'm sitting next to these guys. And, you know, I'm, I was, I was a special teamer. I mean, there were, um, we had the, the, you know, Dave Henkel was the one starting linebacker and Len Spacek had come over from Solon. And even though Lenny was a sophomore, uh, Lenny was, he maybe was even better than David at linebacker, but I mean, he was, he was a stud. There's, there's no shame in me saying that Len quickly passed me on the depth chart. He, he just was a, 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 a beast at linebacker. Um, and, but you could see theoretically where you could a get on the field either at offensive line or at linebacker it would be because of an injury and hopefully be a play or two but on special teams you started to understand the importance of especially having seen how my playing time as a sophomore dwindled as we got to the postseason and we got to the better opponents you understood how it was important when I got to take a rep from a Rod Rezai for a couple plays to get Rod a breather, or I'm on a special team so that, you know, Todd Heyman doesn't have to be, or, you know, for John Carrick's sake, you know, your Marcus and your OJ and your Owen and your Will, those guys were going to be on the field a lot and John taking over, over the special teams role for them. That type of stuff was a, was a bigger deal. You know, you all of a sudden, you sort of move a little bit closer in the meeting room and you're paying a little bit more attention and, and you can, you know, I'm not a tall guy, but I didn't have to look over as many people to, to see what we were trying to do. Um, 
and we had uh, we opened the playoffs at um, the the newly opened uh, Manor Stadium, and uh, we drew chagrin. And so back then, only four teams per region made the playoffs, and we had been close to the top of the computer points for most of the year. Um, having beaten Chagrin to open the season. And um, so here we did go through 10 weeks of the season. And I think it was week nine or 10, Chagrin beats Kenston and they leapfrog us in the standings. And we must have fallen all the way back down to fourth or something because we drew them right out of the shoot. I think maybe they were the second week, but I think it was the first week. It doesn't really matter because, again, it, it goes to um, – the preparation. We played them in a close game to open the season. It, it was a good game, but the game was was uh, you know in question for most of the game. We show up at Manor, and it was um, it was like the last week it's been in Cleveland. It was cold. It was snowy. Uh, it was you know. This was before Under Armour and dry fit. And, you know, back then, if you had tights on, what it meant was you had your little sister's tights on or your mom's old nylons on. And, you know, <laughs> you were putting a pair of mittens on your fingers when you weren't in the game or if you were a lineman, maybe leaving them on the whole time. Uh, it, it was cold. And, you know, we got in that locker room. Is anything that was dry in your bag you were putting on. And, you know, at halftime we came in, we were, we were beating them pretty good. And um, I remember the officials uh, came into the locker room and they used to come in, you know, three and three, five and five, five to get on the field, five to warm up or whatever it was. And I don't know if they were late or we weren't paying attention or what, but we, we were light on time. And all of the kids, we were all like in a big hurry to get everything back on because we had a lot more to get back on. And your dad goes, take your time. We're taking the penalty. <laughs> and it was like, all right. So I guess coach thinks we're in good shape on the scoreboard. And we were such a machine going into that game in the prep that we, that we, I mean, we dominated them. They had a good team. Uh, you know, Scott Thomas, my teammate from eighth grade, was a real nice running back, very quick. Uh, fast little guy and Moses put together a scheme and just bottled them up. And then we jumped on them and they couldn't, they couldn't throw the ball on us. Um, TJ Florkowitz was, uh, I think he was the quarterback on that team. His, uh, his sister taught my son, I think in fourth grade uh, and Florkowitz went on, I think to play at Allegheny and just, you know, the game plan that, that Moses and the staff put together on defense shut down their offense and our offense all year long was clicking. And, uh, you know, I, I don't even feel like we were really. Um... Yeah, so my, my memory, yeah, my memory of that game and, uh, and then watching it many times years later is, like you said, the defensive game plan from Gary was fantastic and the execution by everyone that was on the field for us was um spot on and close to perfect offensively you could tell chagrin went in and they were going to say anyone but oj can beat us so everything was like over the top in their attention to wherever he went so if he went in motion it drew more than it ever would and if uh 
if he went left, the flow went to it. And yeah. so as a result, David Hankel had an enormous first half. And I think the first couple of times we ran trap, OJ's running across the formation and we're slipping a trap inside and Hankel busts it big. He, yeah. he had a great game. So I, I, I'm pretty sure the picture I'm thinking of is from that game. Yeah, and the News Herald. Uh, it was a picture of News Herald, and it's David going up the middle on a trap, getting into the end zone, and you can just see the intensity in his face, and it was. And, and again, I look, there's no doubt OJ was a spectacular talent, and, and it is what it is. But the ability to recognize that teams were going to scheme and take stuff away and we had gone from, as a freshman and as a sophomore, being a, a pure run-and-shoot team with no tailback, two slot backs. Certainly, years one was better than the other, but a balanced team and everything else to you've got a generational talent, and, and they modified the playbook and, and took one of the slots and put him at tailback. Uh, it was basically the same offense, but it also allowed us – to make the defense commit to what we what they thought we were doing and to take advantage of it. the 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 you know the the belly counter and the trap were like candy from a baby those years because you had you had a David Henkel coming back through when everybody's staring at McDuffie. You had a Marcus T coming back through when everybody's staring at McDuffie. And then if you did pay attention, you still had Marcus and, and OJ running cross routes. And, and, you know, David, again, as tough as he was, if he was leading on a sweep, you didn't want to be that guy coming up. You, you know, here's pick your poison. David sticking his face right up in your chest and knocking you on your butt or OJ making you look silly with a move, you know, I'm not sure which one's the better, the better piece there. And we just, you know, we were able to do so much that, you know, it was a different generation in terms of how long you played your starters and what the scores were. Um, the bag of tricks that we had from week to week of basic stock plays that we didn't get to use because of the talent we had. Uh, again, you know, David Henkel got a swimming scholarship to Michigan, a swimming scholarship. That's how good our team was, that this was a guy who was maybe the third option on the team, was good enough to get a Division I scholarship in a different sport, and then decides that he's had enough of that and walks on. And you and I have slight different opinions of the, the school up north and it, 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 how quality a program it is, but I'll concede especially back then, you were talking about a top 10 program historically and then for sure. And here's a kid who isn't recruited even as a preferred walk-on who shows up and makes the two deep on special teams after not, they didn't even know who he was because he was in the, in the swimming pool, you know, on the other side of campus. That's a heck of an athlete is your third option. Yeah, so he he makes that switch to go from the pool to the uh, football field, and he walks on for Gary Moeller and the Michigan Wolverines, and uh, he works his way um, up through practice. And I was actually I wrote him while he was in college a couple of times, and he was getting ready to be on the kickoff coverage team one week, 
And like on Tuesday of that week, he gets a stress fracture in his foot, breaks his foot and he's out. But uh, like you said, no, uh, no small feat there to be able to walk on at a school in the Big Ten, let alone go there initially as a swimmer yeah. and then switch over. Well, and, and, and again, David was a guy without that ego. He had grown up in a house full of quarterbacks and he was a fullback. He had, you know, and he, he tells the story and undersells it. I think anybody who's been around football and seen any amount of big time football and Michigan is big time football understands walking on at Michigan, what that means. And David will poo poo it and say, Oh, he goes, no, he goes, I, I was there. He goes, basically my job was to stand still while Desmond Howard ran by me to practice his Heisman pumps. And, uh, you know, certainly Desmond Howard, again, very special athlete, but Michigan's not letting you on the field near their Heisman no. guy. If you, if you can't hold your own as an athlete and more importantly, if you don't have half a brain to not screw things up, but to in fact, give them a look. And it's, the, the David Henkel story may be one of the best stories of uh, of stuff. I mean, you know, walking on at Michigan is special. I don't care. It's it, very impressive. So we no. So I was just going to move us on. So we lay it to Chagrin Falls um, in the postseason, and so we're moving on. Spring. I think we played Springfield at Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this was the host site? And I, I think that was the second round. I think we played Chagrin and then Springfield. And that makes sense sort of regionally as well. Um, and that, again, that, it was just a very workmanlike game where we went and, and we were a better team and we executed and did our jobs. And we were very much in that mode of we're here, we've got a job to do. And we did. And then going back to Baldwin-Wallace. Funny, funny story Funny story about that Archbold game real quick. So, you know, we're not in uh, present day coaching where you can uh, electronically send scouting film yeah, via yeah. huddle. So it was all about meeting up with the opposing coaching staff somewhere in between and being able to uh, exchange a couple of games of film to use for your practice planning and everything the whole week. Well, you don't find out until usually about Sunday, right around 12, one o'clock who you're going to play. So then right. my dad jumps on the phone and he gets a hold of someone from Archbold. And uh, he said, and I think my dad's story of it is like, he didn't even know exactly where in Ohio Archbold was, <laughs> which, you know, later on you find out is like just shy of Indiana border. Yeah. And so the Archbold coach, maybe just wanting to know where the, the host um, site was that they were going to be playing the next weekend says, well, let's meet at uh, Baldwin Wallace, you know, at Finney stadium. So my dad's like, Oh, okay. So they meet there and not until they meet there, does he realize, you know, he had the 40 minute drive and that guy had like the two hour and 40 minute drive or yeah. whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a different time and it, it, it and you never knew exactly the quality of VHS you were getting from the other guy. And, uh, but you know, for me as a player, I felt that loss at uh at bw as a sophomore okay i think to castelia margaretta margaretta yeah 
you know, by, by the end of that run, you know, week 13, you understood stuff. You'd grown up a little bit. You know what it meant. You, you'd put in the work and you'd done everything else. I actually, it's the first time as a football player, to my knowledge, that I made the paper. Um, we lost that game, um, much like Rich Carlos's kick uh, in, in the drive year. There's people who still think our field goal was good. Uh, we, we tried to kick a field goal to win after getting a uh, tailback sweep pass touchdown call back. Um, and, and it was heartbreaking. And, and, you know, I think at that point we all expected that we were just going to win, you know, the, the seniors, I think had been going into Margareta had been 33 and out. On varsity, it, it, it worse they were thirty two and one because they went ten and zero. Uh, my freshman year, it might have been a couple under went, that. It might have been a couple under well, that, but yeah, very so impressive. I know, I know as a freshman I was ten and zero, and as a, as a sophomore we were ten and zero going into the playoffs. So, you know, you you went in. By the time we got to Margaretta, those kids had won no less than twenty two straight games. Uh, and I, and I, if you told me it was 32, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with you, but it was, it was a lot. And, um, you know, we, we were just sort of surprised. So now you got Archibald, you're back at the, the field of your last untainted loss. Um, and, um, you know, we were on the same sideline, um, I think we had new jerseys, but they were the same color. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff was the same. And afternoon game instead of a yep. cold uh, evening game, which the Margareta finish was yep. very cold. I remember having those uh, fancy heaters the big, on the, the sidelines. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I believe there the were. Torpedoes. Yeah, exactly. And I believe there were some uh, gloves and other things that were purchased by some of the parents to try to keep everyone warm on the sidelines. Yep. And then the Archbolt game, you have this afternoon game with just beautiful sunshine and a uh, much uh, friendlier weather game. But I, but I think also one of the closer games that we played uh, as the year went on, but there was a sort of getting back to the workmanlikeness of stuff. The game was closer, but I don't remember ever being, despite what had happened the year before, ever feeling like we weren't going to win. And, and it was a different feeling. Like as a sophomore, I thought, you know, we, all we did was win. So you thought you were going to win. As a junior, it was, we're doing everything we're supposed to do and we're going to win this game because we're a better team. And I think the beginning of the game was a little bit more of that sort of feeling each other out. And then we did catch our groove and then ended up winning that game. Um, and it was a, it was a weird thing because obviously, you know, next week is bigger. Uh, I at least remembered that Margareta, who I thought we should have beat and who we could have beaten got smoked in the state championship game the next week after they beat us. And that was before, you know, uh, the Ohio news network and you could watch it. It was open up the plane dealer the next day and, yeah. and look at the box score because it was, I think it was Columbus Bishop ready and Margareta, you know, the Cleveland plane dealer didn't even, you know, poor Joe McGill didn't even get a byline for that one. There was, <laughs> there, there was, 
there was no, um, there was barely a write-up. There was just the box score and, and that's all you saw. So it was like, okay, well now what? And we're ecstatic because we're going to Columbus. Um, we're, it's a new set of rules. There's still that element of you're in high school, but now, you know, guess what? You're going to not have to go to classes for the full week. Um, you know, we're getting used to postseason spaghetti dinners because, you know, back then we had no lights. So over half of our games were Saturday afternoon because, you know, us Gilmore WRA and us, none of those four teams had lights. So you typically would have five, home games on a Saturday afternoon and two road games, one to two road games on a Saturday afternoon, if not more. Um, and we were going to be under the lights. We're going to play in Columbus where, you know, Ohio state play where, you know, on a field that you saw on TV regularly. Um, you know, I, I remember many times be it a Saturday game, post game huddle or even Friday night huddles where, you know, we get done and, and coach Walton would say, okay. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Ohio state's got such and so at, at seven o'clock. So go get your showers and get home so you can watch that game. You know, and we did. And now we were going to play on that field. And, you know, again, we knew it was going to be cold. We knew it was turf, you know, back then, even though the, the, the turf at both Ohio State and Baldwin Wallace was just awful, awful, uh, great stuff. I mean, my carpet has more padding at my house, plus it got slippery and and just a, a thing. But you know, you showed up on on Monday to start practice, and um, started. And part of what I've always loved about my experience with Hawk and football is the look back at history. And that Columbus Academy matchup was such a, a, a great throwback to the late 70s and early 80s when that used to be the opening game every single year was Columbus Academy. And so, you know, the coaching staff knew about the school and explained to us that they were similar school to us and that we used to play them and that, you know, they hadn't beaten us, uh, but they were always good games. And, you know, going down uh, there and, you know, I will say we talked about watching game film as we got to be playoffs. We did watch less and less of the prior game as we went through. Now, we'd watch a little bit, but it, it was less about the highlights and more about the look what we did here. And it was, in fact, a teaching moment, but we also watched a lot of here's what's coming up and we got to pay attention to this. And, um, you know, again, cold, snowy. Um, Archibald, I think, and you can check me on this. One of them, obviously, one of them was Thanksgiving week. So Thanksgiving morning, having football practice instead of being with your family was that unique thing. And then the Friday of the of this, this what well, the game was Friday. Uh, yeah. So Thanksgiving, I believe, was it the Archbold game then? The Thanksgiving yeah, I week. Think so. Yeah. And then, but so Columbus Academy week, go through the week of practice, um, and then Friday morning we got to school very early. Um, we went down same day of game, um, 
And, um, you know, Coach Waller was famous when, whenever we, you could tell it was a bigger game or a longer road trip because we'd, we'd get uh, we'd get the Bluebird. We'd get the Bluebird, which was code for, you know, the the, the chartered the bus, charter, the Greyhound yeah. style, instead of the school bus. And, you know, not only did you have to pack your equipment, you had to pack clothes because we we're staying overnight in Columbus. And that was new. And, you know, you were going to be on a bus for three hours driving there, but we went down early. Um, did you get out of school and get to ride down with us or did you come down later? I'm pretty sure I went down with the team. Came, okay, so came back with my mom, but I think I went down to the game with my brothers on the team. Probably bus. better that you came back with your mom. It was not a fun, it was not sure. a fun three hours back. Right. Um, but we, uh, you know, around the bus, we got down there. Uh, the Woody Hayes Center had just opened. Um, the Ohio State season was over, and I don't know if they didn't have a bowl or, or. But we got we got the tour of the Woody Hayes Center, and again, you're seeing up on the lockers the names and numbers of these guys who you know. Um, went and did a walk through on the field. Um, we had the home sideline, but the visitors locker room, because they, the college teams crossed the field, but the high school teams, they weren't having us do that. And at least for me, I, it, I was in, a, I was in awe. It, it um, took me a while. Like the game, the game was underway before I realized there was a game underway type of type of thing. And uh, what I remember one of the things I remember most about the game was um, the number of times that both OJ and Marcus went down in the open field because the field was freezing on us. And, um, you know, at least defensively, Academy was not the best team we played. Uh, we had opportunities where Mother Nature hurt us more than they did, is my recollection. You know, I... It, Anytime OJ was in the open field back then, you had a, you had a shot at six. Uh, and ditto Marcus. And Academy had um, this big, tough fullback. And the weather didn't inf uh, impact them the same way because it was <laughs> appropriate at Ohio State. It was three yards in a cloud of dust. It was bang this kid, bang this kid, bang this kid. And then they had one trick play right before the half where they got a score. And, uh, we just, we never got on, we'd never got, got going. I mean, just something happened every time somebody slipped in the open field. Well, where they, they grinded out a couple scores and they had the, the trick play score and, um, they were, the, they were the better team that day. Yeah. Their personnel on offense was a lot more downhill and, uh, just kind of one cut maybe. And, yeah. you know, you talking about, both OJ and Marcus, um, it felt like they were on skates a lot of times and plays that if the track was any different that they were running on, it would have been, uh, it would have been a different result on a lot of plays, but you know, that's, uh, I, I, yeah, that's I mean, we, I think, that's what we were. I, I think, yeah. I think on a, I think on a warm day, you know, we, we potentially win easily. Uh, I mean, they were going to get their yards and they were going to get their points, but, um, the points, and I don't want to say that we left on the table because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like 
somebody dropped a wide open pass or, you know, we had that one, we had that one sequence right down at the goal line where we couldn't convert on fourth down. And, uh, but, but that wasn't, I mean, ultimately that wasn't the difference. The difference was the guys in the open field. Yeah. You know, they, they were going to score a couple touchdowns and they did. I think they, I think they stole one. Uh, And then we, and then we didn't get the one touchdown that we, that we should have gotten, but the, the open field plays that could have been chunk plays and or scores was, was huge. Um, It is the hardest locker room I've ever been in. Um, I I don't know if it was, um, you know, 14 weeks and over two years, 27 weeks with a lot of the same guys. Uh, If it was a sense of maturity, if it was a sense of um, enlightenment, I have a, a very uh, vivid memory that, that's bittersweet because, uh, you know, I, I, I consider our OJ and Marcus friends today. Um, you know, I will text with both of them pretty regularly. I, I, I see Mark. Marcus comes to town pretty regularly for a guy who doesn't live in Cleveland. Um, and I remember sitting on the front bleacher at the open end they used to have portable bleachers that they would put up because they used to still run track and field in that building back then. And I was sitting in the, the front bleacher on the way into our locker room and uh, OJ Marcus came up and sat down and talked to me and uh, tried to console me. And, you know, I had a, a moment of clarity that this type of team and this type of success uh, was not something that everybody got to do and that I was not ever going to be back there again in that situation. And again, part of uh, the greatness of the program from the top to the bottom was an appreciation by everybody of those things. And of the fact that, you know, uh, my my dad's a my dad's a doctor. Uh, my mom's was a college professor. Um, you know, I lived a very comfortable lifestyle. Um, it, you know, I I don't know one way or the other, but I don't think I got any financial aid or anything like that going to Hawken. And and I'm sure I, I would guess the majority of my teammates that that would be true. Uh, you know, Jay and Marcus both single moms raised kids. Um, from, you know, traditionally black schools and in inner city areas. Um, I didn't worry about bills being paid and we took vacations in the summer. And, you know, that was, that was my reality and theirs was very different. And despite that, here, here were two guys who were very different than me, who were brothers to me and took the time to, to, you know, you've seen me and you've seen OJ, what a joke. I mean, I blocked for that guy. I used to tell people he wouldn't have made it to the NFL without me. And they go, Oh yeah, right. And I go, yeah, no, if I missed a couple more blocks, that guy would have been ruined. I mean, that's, that's (laughs) the reality. And that was that, that locker room was, it didn't matter if you were the the white kid, the black kid, the Jewish kid, the Christian kid, the, the Buddhist kid, the Indian kid, the whatever, just everybody was part of the team. And you know, it was, you had, you had a Steve Arnoff, uh, this 
nutty, hilarious kid who, when the game started, was just a big, nasty, mean guy who wanted to play football, who graduates and is a rabbi, I believe, in New York City. Blocking for this black kid who plays in the NFL, but also next to another kid who, you know, makes wine in, you know, Northern California, next to a guy who's a lawyer, who's in the, and next to, you know, John Zoller. I, I, we haven't even talked about John Zoller. I, forget, I can't believe I forgot about John Zoller, who just, again, a super creative guy, really solid football player. Perfectly molded football, for center position. Yeah. Who, as soon as football was over, goes over and he's acting in plays. You know, I, I mean, that's just all this diversity in every meaning of the word in that locker room. And it was, it was special. And, you know, I knew that day I wasn't going to recapture the, the, the freshmen and sophomores behind us were not the same, at least, you know, we're always better than we think. And we all walked uphill in the snow, but it wasn't the same type of thing that we had had. And, um, you know, it, it, and I knew it was going to be different afterwards. And, you know, we had my senior year at that point, our schedule was the highest winning percentage of any schedule. We did okay. Um, a couple of games we should have won that we didn't. We had some injury issues that hurt us. Um, but even if everything had broken right, it wasn't going to be the same. Um, you know, you, you, you let me off the hook, so I'll throw myself back under the bus. Way <laughs> back when I was a sophomore, um, it, it, we were playing at U.S., and um, we, uh, we didn't lose a regular season game that year, so we hadn't lost, obviously. And, you know, by that point, everybody knew who O.J. was, and so I'm sure he got extracurriculars under the pile, especially in that matchup. And um, guys ripping at stuff and everything else. And at some point in the game, OJ had his hip pad torn. And um, I don't, I, I don't know that I knew when it happened or how it happened or what have you. But Todd Heyman, who Todd and I both played guard and linebacker, and Todd was ahead of me on the depth chart. I was a sophomore. He was a junior, uh, he, and he was one of Merle Davis's favorite whip, whipping boys. Todd uh, generously donated his hip pad to OJ uh, so that the game could continue. And uh, we roll into the fourth quarter. If memory serves me, we're up 28-6. We were clearly a better team. I'm not even sure if the score should have been that close, but we're in control. And uh, Davis calls out and he goes, Christy, get over here. And I'm like, sweet, I'm going in. This is U.S., you know, the rival. You know, this is Ohio State, Michigan in high school, right? Uh, and, and I'm all geeked up. Like, I'm probably tightening up my chin strap and, you know, whatever as I come running over. I need your hip pad. That was as close as I got to the field that day. So close. But as much as, like, in, you know, 33 years later, whatever it is, that's a funny story. Um, I did not begrudge my hip pad being given to the, the the player a year ahead of me for his opportunity to get on the field in that grudge game because it was his turn and it was the right thing to do and you know both as a player and as a coach you, you would have that 
there was always almost every season and it's a different guy or two every season. There's that kid who scores a touchdown or catches a pass in the last three games who like everybody on the coaching staff and the people who are paying attention on the team get a little extra, you know, sweet because boy, we know that guy worked hard or has stuck it out or has overcome whatever. And we're glad that that could happen. And, you know, I'll jump ahead a little bit. Um, I just saw something. He just got some promotion at work um, to, to my coaching days. Um, and um, I, you played with Jacob Scott. Yeah. He was a senior my sophomore year. Okay. So, you know, Jacob, uh, tall, skinny kid, kind of built like John Zoller, um, except John was way more athletic than Jacob, which is funny to say about a guy who went on to wrestle for the Naval Academy. But uh, as an underclassman, and even as a junior, Jacob was a horrible athlete, was a horrible football player, super nice kid, super hard worker. Um, but I remember we used to take a spring trip uh, to, to a college to go to a football clinic. And we would spend the evenings or the drive talking about, all right, who, who do we got coming back? What do we have and everything else? And when we got to Jacob after his junior year, um, the conversation was not where can he help us? What can we do? The conversation was how are we going to get him a varsity letter? Because he didn't fit on special teams because he was slow and he was gangly and he, he didn't fit as a defensive player because he was too skinny and not strong enough. And on offense, you know, clearly he was the lineman, but was even going to be able to block anybody because he was still not very strong and everything else. And, um, you know, fast forward a couple months because the spring trip would have been probably, you know, April-ish around the, the spring games of the college schedule. And we show up in August, and I'm not sure exactly when, uh, but Jacob establishes himself as, as the left tackle. And in our system, it's a little bit different than the, uh, you know, the uh, Jedrick Willis uh, left tackle of the NFL model, but he was still clearly going to be our starting left tackle. And I don't think he missed a meaningful snap at left tackle and played just a solid. And he, again, it was a kid who plotted worked hard. And then his explanation point, because Jacob's a lot of things, we did not throw him a touchdown and for a lot of reasons, but we, we go and play uh, Warren JFK who had been our playoff nemesis for a bunch of years and Jacob was who seldom played defense, but he was on the field for our basically our field goal block team. Yep. And you know, most of your guys blocking field goals from the edge can run and are quick and fast and everything else. Jacob was neither quick nor fast, but he was long and he was determined. And I remember they came down and scored and Jacob comes crashing in from the end on the extra point and buries and blocks the extra point. And for a team that had beaten us a bunch of years, uh, and not because of talent disparity, they just, they had the edge on us. That was a huge moment for him personally, obviously that's very cool. But for us, I just think 
what a momentum swing of here's this kid who like a year ago, you're going, how's he even getting on the field? And it's a momentum shifting thing. I mean, I think, you know, sort of philosophically when it comes to, to football, there's a couple of things that really can shift momentum. And after giving up a touchdown, you're going to be deflated, but boy, knocking an extra point back down is such a, it is a start to get that momentum going back. And we won the game and not necessarily because of that play, but it was one of those sort of quintessential, here's a kid who works hard and stays at it. And his determination gets him to the point where not only is he on the field, but he's contributing and contributing in a big way. Yeah. So there's a, there's a picture of him celebrating that kick block in one of the local papers. It might've been the sugar and Valley times or something like that, but it's just a great picture of him celebrating it. And to, uh, expand a little bit on your um, comments about being a kick blocker. You know, it's not just about being able to sort of pin those ears back and sprint around the corner that that is important, but what Jacob would do that not everyone on your team is willing to do is to lay out in just the right spot in front of that, that kick trajectory. And he was long. He had a nice little growth spurt going into a senior yeah. year. Part of the reason why he filled out and was able to play, um, a lot of meaningful reps for us on defense and then start at left tackle, like you had said. So that was great to see him have that, uh, have that moment in that, that nice 93 um, postseason stretch that we had. Yeah. He, you know, blocking a kick to me is one of the biggest momentum turners. And to your point, the, the, the will to do it, you are not going to block a kick every time you try. Uh, you hope that you don't commit a penalty and give anybody a first down or a closer attempt when you try. But every time you lay out, it is going to hurt because you're going to land on the ground. And if you do block the kick, it's going to hurt because you're going to land on the ball, the ground, and the ball is going to bounce off some part of your body. Mm -hmm. And again, no ego, no no pure self selflessness, not selfishness of I'm going to go and I'm going to work hard to do this. And it might hurt a little bit, but this is going to help the team. And guy bounces a ball off my, my face mask. That's okay. If I block that kick and that, that was Jack, Jake, you know, he, uh, from the time he was an underclassman was always trying to help. And then now after build him up, I'll tell the, the funny Jacob Scott story of uh, when he was working the clipboard as an underclassman and he's standing next to your dad, writing down the plays so that we can when we watch the film, know what's coming. And your dad, of course, is on the phone. I, I think back then still with Frank Brandt. And uh, so he's talking to, to Frank on the headset saying, what do you think we should do here? And I'm not sure what week it was into the season, but it was well into the season where your dad realized that Jacob was answering his questions thinking that your dad was in fact asking this sophomore fourth spring lineman, <laughs> what did he think about a, about a sprint pass here and getting Jacob's input on. But again, that was Jacob. He didn't think about this is crazy that the coach is asking me. Coach is asking me, so I'm going to do whatever the coach asks me. I'm going to give him my input. That's good. Continue listening to John's trip down to the river in part two.